Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, show number 290, a different kind of Finance Friday edition, where Scott and I answer your questions direct from our Facebook group. Personal finance is personal. And if you can live with having $81,000 in debt while you are choosing to pay the minimums and investing other ways or paying slightly above the minimums and growing your liquid savings account, then do that. But if it is weighing on you and making it so you can't even sleep at night because you have this massive student loan debt that you are just feeling is crushing your soul, then pay them down as much as possible because your health, your well-being, your, your mental state is what's most important here. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen. And with me, as always, is my luminous co-host, Scott Trench. Thank you for such a glowing introduction, Mindy. Always appreciate it. <laughs> Scott and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else, to introduce you to every money story because we truly believe financial freedom is attainable for everyone, no matter when or where you're starting. That's right. Whether you want to retire early and travel the world, go on to make big time investments in assets like real estate, start your own business, or just get some frameworks to help make basic background decisions um, that affect your overall financial portfolio. We'll help you reach your financial goals and get money out of the way so you can launch yourself towards those dreams. Today, Scott and I are looking at the questions you have been asking us in our Facebook group. If you're not a member of our Facebook group, you can join at facebook.com slash groups slash BP money and have delightful money conversations with your fellow frugal freaks or money nerds or discuss spreadsheets with those who truly love the spreadsheet game like Scott and all the rest of you in our group. Uh, but there are some common threads that have been uh, requested and asked in the group lately. And Scott and I wanted to speak at length about some of these questions that you have been having. Just to cover all of my legal bases, my attorney makes me say the contents of this podcast are informational in nature and are not legal or tax advice. And neither Scott nor I nor Bigger Pockets is engaged in the provision of legal, tax, or any other advice. You should seek your own advice from professional advisors, including lawyers and accountants, regarding the legal, tax, and financial implications of any financial decision you contemplate. Okay, now on with the show. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high-quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal Do Not Call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com bp. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet 
help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Scott, this first question I think is a lot of fun. The poster says, I have a friend who came into roughly $750,000. She has no interest in real estate. (gasps) The horror. Wants to put it in an investment vehicle that is relatively safe, but that still allows her to access the funds without penalty should she decide to buy a car or pay her house off. So, Scott, where should she invest her money? Yeah, I, I mean, like the, the question in 2022 is what's a safe investment? And I think that um, if you can answer that question, you're going to get very, very wealthy very, very quickly. So I don't think there is a true answer to this question. Um, and you, and it comes back to where should I invest in 2022, which I think is the question at the top of everyone's minds. And the my kind of framework for answering that question um, has to do with just analyzing asset classes at the highest level, right? The stock market is still really close to all-time highs in terms of price-to-earnings ratios, right? Even with a little bit of a pullback in the first couple of months here in 2022. Real estate prices have jumped dramatically uh, over the last couple of years, 20 30% year-over-year appreciation um, with this, and it's, and it's insane, right? Um, interest rates look like they're poised to rise, which makes bonds a really scary investment vehicle right now, right? Bond, bond equity goes down when interest rates go up. We could have a whole show explaining about why that's the case if we want to do that in the future. Um, cash seems like a tough situation because, you know, if you're expecting significant infl- inflation or for, the, or for that to continue over the course of this year and into next year, then putting the money in cash and sitting on it is a, is a big risk. So I think a lot of people are really uncomfortable, um, just like this person who posted this question right now in 2022 about where to put that money. So perhaps the best answer is to just spread the risk across a number of different cases. So one, you know, one framework that might be get, you know, um, the wheels spinning for, for this person would be, okay, stick a bunch of that into an index fund, stick some of it into, you don't, we're not interested in real estate. You could, you could try a REIT, um, if you did want some exposure as they call it to the real estate um, asset class there, you could have keep some in cash and you could keep some in things like gold or commodities there that will hold their value. I mean, if, if your, if your goal is to keep this liquid and not have it go down, that might be, that might be a way you're not going to get rich doing that. Right. Um, but the question here is not, how do I maximize my returns over 30 years, um, and build the most wealth? It's how do I, um, put this 750,000 into an investment vehicle that is relatively safe and still allows me to access the funds without penalty. And if you put it in a bolt, multiple different asset classes like that, you might be able to um, see some wins and trade-offs there um, uh, as, as, as one or several of those asset classes are bumpy, but the other ones um, are bumpy in the opposite direction or um, remain stable. Okay, I have a bit of a different take on this. And then I'm going to ask you, Scott, what you specifically are investing in. But my my first comment is he asked or she asked that she wants to 
be allowed to access the funds without penalty. And when I hear penalty, I think pre-tax investments that you're withdrawing before the age limit that allows you to withdraw. So I just wanted to make a note that it, uh, he says that the friend came into roughly came into the money. I'm assuming an inheritance of some sort. So this is an after tax event, and penalties wouldn't be assessed. But this person would almost assuredly pay taxes on any gain when they withdraw the funds. So this would be an after tax account. Let's say that they're putting it all into the stock market. Anytime you withdraw from an after-tax account and have had a gain, you're going to pay taxes on that gain. So there's always going to be a penalty, and I'm doing that in air quotes, um, but it's not really a penalty, it's just a tax. Uh, another thing that I wanted to say is that safe equals low return. Higher returns come in exchange for a higher risk. And there was a lot of chatter about the I-bonds that were paying 7.2% for the first six months, starting in like November of 2021. Um, but that was for the first six months. And I think it's a five-year commitment and you had to have them in for a year and then you could take it out uh, before the five years early and there would be some sort of penalties, which goes against her original uh, request. But the max amount on that was only $10,000. So that's not really even going to make big dent in her $750,000 that she has. Um, and again, if you've listened to the show before, you know, I'm not a big fan of bonds because they are so safe. Safe means there's not a lot of risk that you will lose the value of your money, but there's also not a lot of opportunity for huge returns. I like huge I, I, returns. I think there is a lot of risk in bonds that you're going to, that you're going to, lose a lot of money on paper right now, right? I mean, if interest rates go from like three, you know, you know, mortgage rates are right now four, 4.7%, right? If, if interest rates go up, right, the equity value of those bond holdings is going to go down, right? And bondholders actually did really well um, over the last couple of years as interest rates plummeted. Um, you know, because if interest rates go from 3% to 2%, um, that's a huge de decrease on a percentage basis and the equity value of those bonds goes way up. Um, so bonds have not been the the safe haven that is going to spread risk around the portfolio. I think that they they once were right now. I think they're extremely volatile and there's a ton of le leverage in bonds in bond markets right now. They're affected dramatically by 25, 50 point basis, basis point rate hikes, for example. I think we need to get somebody on to explain to us how bonds work exactly, because I have a very loose understanding of how bonds work. I know enough to know that I don't really want to put my money in bonds, but maybe my loose understanding of bonds is preventing me from doing something that I should. Uh, I don't know. But yeah, I think that that would be, that's a good idea. We should get somebody on to talk at length about bonds and how they work. Um, but, but back to this woman, there's no information about income or the age of the person. So I'm just going to give general advice. $750,000 is a lot of money for almost anybody. Um, I give the same basic advice over and over again because it's proven to work over and over again. She needs to know what her annual spending is. She could be financially independent right now with this $750,000. She could be spending $250,000 a year, in which case this seven fifty dollars is like nothing to her. But she's not going to know unless she's tracking her spending. So she she doesn't need to necessarily track it as closely as I'm tracking it at biggerpockets.com slash Mindy's budget, where I am tracking all of my spending every dime that goes out of my pocket because I truly want to know how much money I am spending. 
Um, but she needs to have an overall idea of the money that's going out of her pocket on an annual basis. Um, and then she needs to make a very loose budget based on that. Um, is she working? Does she plan to continue to work? And what is she investing in right now? Um, if she's working, I would take the money that she's making her income right now and use that to max out her 401k and use that to max out her Roth IRA if she is eligible for that. If she's younger, that's going to be even more important because the Roth IRA grows tax-free. So the more money she can put in now, the more opportunity she has to withdraw with no penalties, with no taxes, once she is of age. Um, what is that, 59 and a half? Can you take out of the Roth IRA? Yep. All of a sudden, I'm drawing a blank, which is awesome right as we record. Uh, the but what I am doing in 2022 is the same thing that I have been doing all along is investing in VTSAX. I have my eye on the real estate market and I am keeping track of what's going on. If an attractive rental property pops up, if an attractive real estate opportunity pops up, I will invest in it. I just invested in Dryland Distillers, a whiskey producer in my hometown, because it was an attractive opportunity to invest in my local city. And I really like this. I, I like the product that they make. I like the people that are running it. I like the the city that it's in. I want to invest in my city's future. So you know, I'm looking for more opportunities like that. But I'm also doing a lot in VTSAX, Carl and his dumb Tesla, and now his his favorite uh, index is the QQQs, the Qs. Um, so we're just, we're basically, we're staying the course. We're doing what we were doing and we're not really changing our minds based on what's going on in the market, in the um the interest rates, and in all of that, because we have a plan. We believe in the financial future of the stock market. We believe that the stock market tends to go up and to the right. And that is where we are putting our money based on past performance. And past performance is not indicative of future gains, but it kind of is. I mean, I wouldn't continue to put my money in the stock market if I didn't believe that it was going to continue to go up. Yeah. I, I think it's great. And I completely agree with your approach, right? I, I think that, you know, if if I'm, you know, if we take this person's question and reframe it as what's the best thing to do over a long period of time? Well, you know, what I think and what I would do and what I have done when in, because I've been fortunate enough to be in a similar position um, in past years to have a large sum of money that I'm coming into is great. My, my philosophy is that, you know, they're making more people but not more land. Um, the United States is likely to be a dominant global player, and I'm going to invest in the United States um, and our economy long term. Um, you can debate these assumptions, but these are like fundamental, unprovable um, assumptions that you can debate uh, uh, with this, and that inflation is going to be a, a factor um, that I'm going to have to deal with across my investing lifetime. My time horizon is 75 years. So what asset classes am I going to put that in, right? I, I don't think that I, I have any particular ability over a long period of time to pick the best stocks or even the best real estate necessarily. So I've, I've got to have a strategy that allows me to pick, um, um, that, that allows me to win with average investments 
in that asset class over a long period of time relative to other ones, right? And so great, I can go through and say, bonds are not a good option for me um, in a scenario like this, right? Because bond rates are near historic all-time lows. And I think that over a long period of time, bond rates are going to increase, which means that I'm gonna lose money if I'm putting a lot of money into bonds on average in that asset class. That may change if bond yields ever start reaching a all-time highs or even the middling um, levels um, relative to, to historical contexts. But that's just that's just out for me. So that, you know, real estate. I think look like I just said they're not making more. They're making a lot more people, and they're not making a lot more land. Um, and they're not, we're not making enough houses. So I'm going to continue to buy real estate as part of my portfolio and just be consistent. I would I would place portions of this money into real estate, um, maybe over a two or three year period, property by property, um, and cash flow in real estate in an area that I think has strong long term appreciation prospects. And then I dump a lot into index funds. I also love the idea, um, you know, of of investing in local businesses or small businesses, especially services based businesses. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. There's a lot of these businesses that are selling for one, two, three times cash flow. That are especially if these these small businesses that are just getting started here, that I think are a great opportunities. So I love the fact that you're investing in a. Um, uh, a, a local distillery. That's exactly the kind of thing that I'm, I'm going to start getting interested in. Although I admit I have not done that very much in the past. So if, if I was, if I, if you're, if you're repeating what I did a few years ago, when I had a similar opportunity, I put this money into real estate and index funds, dumped it all in there, had a cash position. I should have put it in all at once. That's the mathematically strongest approach um, that Michael Kitsis came in and shared with us. But instead, I, I dollar cost averaged over a two or three year period um, to put that money in there because I was too too wimpy to um, put it all in at once and risk a, a big downturn right after I put it in. <laughs> How's that? I think that's great. And I think that we both have the same plan. We have decided on our investment strategy and we are staying the course of our investment strategy regardless of market conditions at this time. Yeah. Okay, moving on to the next question. This person shares, I am wondering your thoughts on my financial situation. I have no consumer debt and no mortgages. My only debt is, <sighs> emphasis is mine, a whopping $81,000 in federal student loans. The average interest rate for my loans is 4.4%. I want to note that that's the average. He's earning wages of $47,000 per year right now, but working on increasing this and expect to be making $65,000 in about a year. What should he do with these student loans? Pay them down as much as possible. Pay the minimums until he has significant income from investments years from now. Or pay slightly above minimum to make a dent, but continue to build liquid savings. Or plan D, your other option. So Scott, where would you go first? Uh, first of all, no right answer here. It's going to depend on your, your risk tolerance and what you want to invest in. Um, you know, the, the, if you want to, you know, my, my approach, the way my mind works is I always have to play the odds, right? I can handle a bad outcome. I can't handle a bad bet. Um, and so to me, I would look at it like, okay, at the very least, long-term average return of the stock market has been between eight and 10%. Now, people can debate what they think it is going to be going forward. I use that number somewhere in that range, 8 to 10%, to assume, to assume long-term returns in the stock market um, from an index fund investment. So right there, I've got arbitrage of between you know 3.6 and 5.6% um, in terms of returns that I can, I can put money into the stock market and earn 
likely over a long period of time, more of a return than I can paying off the student loan debt. It's not guaranteed. And paying off student loan debt is a guaranteed 4.4% return um, because you're not going to pay that interest anymore. But what I'd really do, um, I would really then take that logic to the next level and uh, and do exactly what Craig Curlop did, which is house hack. Um, because when you when you house hack, um, he, he what he did is he house hacked. He bought a, a a duplex, rented out one side, lived in the other in the kitchen in the living room <laughs> um, behind a curtain or whatever, and rented out the room. Um, that might be too extreme, but you can take that uh, that house hacking concept and understand. Hey, there's a chance to get a two hundred percent. ROI on a house hack in the early years, right? You're putting down 5% on a, on a, on a property. It appreciates 3%. You're going to get a 20 to, you're going to get a 60% ROI um, just because of that leverage factor on appreciation in the first year. If things are average appreciation in that, in that 3% range, um, you're going to pay down the mortgage and you're going to have somebody um, potentially helping you pay down the mortgage, which is going to reduce your cash outflows, right? If I'm paying, you know, 2000 a month in rent, and I have a and I'm house hacking and I'm getting my mortgage is is twenty five hundred and I'm getting eighteen hundred in rent um, to help me offset that mortgage. Now I'm only paying seven hundred and that cash flow can really add up and help you build a portfolio. Um, that's a that that's an aggressive approach. Right. You are taking substantial financial risk in that scenario. But frankly, I think that's what I would have done in this situation if I'd had student loan debt. I definitely house hacked without the student loan debt um, uh, as my first major investment, but I I would, I I like the way that Craig thought about it. Um, And it's just, it's something that you're gonna have to grapple with and think through. So you can lose um, on that and you you, you are assuming substantial risk and more debt, but I think that it's, you know, that's, that's how I would be thinking about playing this game. And Craig told this story on episode 35 of our podcast. So go back and listen to episode 35 and hear him detail how he did this. He did a lot of things to generate side income and generate other streams of income to help him pay off. I think he had like $85,000 in student loan debt. So it's it's a similar amount. And he was, I think he was making more income, which allowed him to buy a house to do the house hacking, but he was renting his car on Turo and he was basically anytime he could make money, he was he was making money and he used uh, the minimum of payments so that he could use the money to generate more money so that he could pay off the, the loans. But yeah, great, yeah. great episode from Craig. Um, and, and, and I one, had the chance to watch his life firsthand in this because he, he came here to work at Bigger Pockets and and then graduated uh, from Bigger Pockets uh, a, a few years ago. Um, we, had, we, had, we had a graduation party, which is you know an unusual <laughs> turnover event, um, but one that I'm I'm very proud that we that we have here occasionally. So um, um, and he and he just like the world's his oyster at this point, right? I mean, he's got all the options in the world. He's got a huge real estate portfolio and a, a booming agent business, and um, and and so that's the the reward piece of this that's possible um, from an aggressive approach like that, even from starting from a student, a position of student loan debt. Of course, there is risk assumed and there is an all out factor that allowed him to accelerate that quickly. Yeah. And, you know, he did things that other people weren't necessarily willing to do. He was living behind a screen. He was sleeping on the couch. Is that something that you want to do? Maybe, maybe not. I don't want to rent portions of my house out on Airbnb because I have small children and I just don't want strangers in my house. But he didn't have kids and it was no big deal for him. Um, So it's just, you know, what are you comfortable with and what 
what are you willing to do to get rid of the loans? Um, another thing that I want to point out is on episode 267, we interviewed Robert Farrington from The College Investor, and he was talking about the federal student loans, not private student loans, and not, this doesn't apply if you have refinanced your student loans, but if you have a federal student loan right now, there is a moratorium on your repayment. Your loan repayment is, your more your payment is currently at 0%. And so it's basically on hold. It is going through April 30th or May 1st or whatever, and they are ex fully expecting it to be pushed back. But as of the date of this recording, they have not yet pushed that back. Um, so there are other ways for you to use that money if you are in a federal student loan. And again, Robert is very well versed on this, and he shared a lot of information on episode 267. Um, when we talked about the the student loan and how to prepare, that episode was recorded right before they pushed that back. Um, and it was more of how to prepare for the student loans to be repaid. But, you know, Scott, another thing that I want to throw out there again, I, sounding like a broken record, is personal finance is personal. And if you can live with having $81,000 in debt while you are choosing to pay the minimums and investing other ways or paying slightly above the minimums and growing your liquid savings account, then do that. But if it is weighing on you and making it so you can't even sleep at night because you have this massive student loan debt that you are just feeling is crushing your soul, then pay them down as much as possible because your health, your well-being, your your mental state is what's most important here. Um, Absolutely. So that's where I'm going to that's where I'm going to leave with that. Uh the next question is kind of an offshoot of this one. Um you know, I was uh actually Scott I'm going to ask you to to make your comment about uh you have a less than when the interest rate is less than 4%, you you leave it when it's more than 7%, you pay it off and I can't remember your numbers ever. What is your mantra on that? Uh yeah, well I think I think that when you're when you have a low interest rate and you can call it less than 4%, um I I I I generally wouldn't pay that off early for the most part. In the kind of like five to seven percent range, it's kind of a gray area. Um, maybe you can arbitrage it, maybe you can't. And if you're over seven or eight percent, okay, now you're getting a guaranteed seven or eight percent return, right? So I I think that the stock market is a risky eight to ten percent return uh, over a long period of time. So you know, and it, it's less certain. Um, and so I would I would just start paying off the debt. At that higher interest rate, unless I was, unless I had a really great opportunity, like a house hack, for example, um, that I might do before before doing that. But there's a, you know, in that red zone, that's not where the red zone being, you know, seven eight percent plus on interest rate. I would be uh, thinking about other things. By the way, that will that may move over time in a high inflation environment um, and rising interest rate environment, right? So that framework might not apply in two, three years, if uh, interest rates rise to, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10%, um, like they were a few decades ago, right? Then you'll have to make a different, we'll have to rebalance that. <laughs> I'll come back and ask you for your new opinion. Okay, so this next question is kind of an offshoot of that with different interest rates. Uh, she says, I'm in the interview process for a new job and I'm super excited to have a 401k option. Should I wait to contribute to my 401k until I pay down all my debt? I will be debt free within seven to 12 months with my current plan if I put most of my savings toward debt. The debt is varying interest rates. 
a few credit cards with $2,500 total in balances and 22.99% plus interest rates. So that right there, I'm going to stop with the question and say, pay that off as soon as you can with whatever money you have in savings, pay off your 22% interest rate credit cards as soon as you can. Um, Another card with $1,500 balance that is at 0% until July and then goes to 22%. So that one, because it's at 0%, I would leave it at 0%. Again, with credit cards, you want to make the minimum payment that you have to until the interest rate kicks up higher. But with with the highest rates, pay those off as soon as you can. Um, So another credit card that is at 0% until July and then goes up to 22%, a card at $500 at 7.99%. And the student loans, I'm not sure what the interest rates are on those. They are in forbearance and they are all 0% right now. I can't find out what it was before the forbearance, but I don't think they are very high. Total debt is about $14,000. So um, I think, Scott, you're going to be in agreement with me absolutely knock out the $2,500 at the 22% interest right now, then go after the $500 at 8%. And then you're probably going to be at the $1,500 balance and nearing July with the when it's going back up to the 22%. If you can crank that out before July when you're paying 0% on that, I would do that. And again, back to the student loan comment, they're in forbearance right now. You don't have to pay anything on them. And back to episode 267 with Robert Farrington, he said, right now, I wouldn't suggest paying more on your student loans than you have to, which is currently $0, because they could continue to extend it out. And especially if you have other debt, if you don't have any other debt, if you want to crank pay out these student loans now, you know, now is a great time to pay them off at 0%. But if you do have a lot of other debt, focus on those first. Yeah, for me, for me, this is pretty clear cut. I would, I would pay off the the credit card debt uh, and not contribute to the four hundred one k in this in this particular situation. Um, a framework behind that is, you know, uh, that that twenty two point nine nine percent interest rate against the $2,500, that's compounding directly against what I call financial runway. Financial runway being the amount of time that you can survive without a paycheck, right? So if you spend $3,000 a month and you have $3,000 in the bank, you have one month of financial runway. If you have $30,000 in the bank and you spend $3,000 a month, you have 10 months of financial runway, right? And I like to get to, um, as as a step in the process um, of building wealth, my... my um, I had this drive to get to a year of financial runway because I thought a lot of options would multiply uh, before me. I think there's a really good return on that that you can't calculate in some ways. Um, and this this is compounding against the ability to accumulate that runway, right? And that runway has got to be accessible outside of these retirement accounts. Not everyone agrees with that, but that's that's how I viewed it um, for my journey um, getting started here. And I would I would pay off that that credit card debt um, and then. Uh, at a 22.99%, then I'd pay off the other one that's going to go to 22.99% in July. And then I'd pay off the 8% as well, because that's still a very high interest rate relative to the options in the, uh, on the 401k. Actually, let me say this. I might start taking the match from my employer after I paid off the credit card debt at 22, 23%. When I had the next level of debt at 8%, 
I might start taking the match at that point because the match is such a great return if your employer offers a 401k match. Um, and I would continue to take that match while paying the, re the remaining high interest rate debt down. If my student loans were in the 4% range, after I'd paid off the 23% debt and the 8% debt, I would then maybe not aggressively prepay the student loan debt and instead consider investing more in the 401k or in other stock market index funds or a house hack or building runway. Yep, I agree with that. I forgot the 401k part of the question. I was just focused on the 22% interest rate. You know, that should be illegal to charge 22% on a credit card. But nobody asked me. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. You're trying to save, trying to invest, but your bank account is stuck. How about we get rid of some of those unused subscriptions you forgot about? Trust me, with Rocket Money, it's easy. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Take control over your subscriptions and cancel your unused ones with just a few taps. Create a custom budget, view spending habits, and let Rocket Money negotiate to lower your bills for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. That's rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. I used to think working from home was the dream until it wasn't. Between the distractions and the solitude, I was struggling. But then I discovered Industrious Office, and honestly, it's been a game changer. Every day at Industrious feels like stepping into a zone of productivity. The high-speed internet never fails me during crucial moments, and the workspace? It's not only stylish, but designed to boost your focus and creativity. Plus, the daily breakfast and endless coffees are super cool. Meeting other driven professionals right where I work has not just expanded my network, it's inspired me. It's amazing how being around other focused people can push you to achieve more, you know what I mean? If you're looking for a sign to change your workspace, this is it. Check out Industrious by visiting biggerpockets.com slash industrious. Then click join now and use the promo code pockets to get a free week of co-working when you take a tour. That's biggerpockets.com slash industrious and use promo code pockets after clicking join now. Experience for yourself how the right environment can change the way you work. Industrious. It's where your best work happens. Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers an 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split. 
with 70% of profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, get paid first. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of the physical asset provide additional security in case of borrower default. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by redirecting your funds from Wall Street to Main Street, supporting local economies and generating profits simultaneously. This investment is reserved for accredited investors, but if you are not accredited, Pine Financial has options for you too. Don't miss this opportunity to back Main Street over Wall Street and start earning passive real estate income. Learn more about investing with Pine at pinefinancialgroup.com BP. That's pinefinancialgroup.com BP. Okay, moving on to real estate, because that is kind of our thing. Where I live in the D.C. metro area, rents are cheaper than buying. So I have decided to rent in the school district I wanted my daughter to attend. I have money saved for a good down payment for a house, but I'm debating if it's worth buying or just keep renting for much less. Buying a rental is an option that I've been contemplating, but it scares me a little not having a house of my own. Has anyone been in a similar situation and what did you do? And before I I can hear your house hacking wheels turning, I know that the D.C. area doesn't have a ton of duplexes. So I don't think that that is an option for her. But I want to point out that renting is a valid option for your housing needs, especially in an area where rents are significantly cheaper than buying. The problem is you run into these exponentially increasing housing prices, rents will eventually catch up to housing prices. Rents will start to go up. There is a shortage of housing because we haven't been building since 2008. So rents will eventually start to go up. And a good way to hedge your bet on this is to buy a rental in a market that isn't your expensive home market. You don't have to own a home, own a rental in your current market. And it's perfectly valid to buy a rental property and own a rental property while being a renter yourself. In fact, Scott, do we know anybody who owns rental properties while being a renter themselves? Could it be the CEO of biggerpockets.com? Yeah, I, 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 exactly. I, I rent <laughs> my current, my primary residence due to a lot, due to essentially this this conundrum here. I paradoxically also own lots of investment property here in Denver, Colorado. So I'm bullish on the market. Why do I do that, right? Well, with my primary residence, I view my my housing as an expense, right? And so what's the cheapest way to live the lifestyle that I want to live, right? And you know, we're, we're, this person says, um, renting is cheaper than buying in my area. Well, let's dive into that. Why can renting be cheaper than buying, right? Let's suppose I buy a house for... $500,000, right? When I, if I turn around and sell that house tomorrow, I've got to pay two agents, the listing agent and the buyer agent. And I might have to pay them up to 6% of the proceeds of that, of that purchase, right? I might have to spend another one to 2% of that $500,000 purchase price on other seller paid closing costs. And by the way, when I bought the property, I'm paying one to 2% of the property purchase price in buyer closing costs. So day one, um, even though Technically, I don't. I haven't lost all that equity. I'm really down fifty thousand dollars 
immediately after buying that property if I were to attempt to turn around and sell it the next week, right? That is why that is one of the major expenses in buying a house. That expense is defrayed over a period of years as appreciation on average kicks in as I'm amortizing my loan with part of my mortgage payment, right? The principal portion of my mortgage payment, right? And over time, owning can become cheaper than renting. But to me, you know, again, I go back to what's the right bet to make here. And every, you know, in, 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 a, in a year when home prices go up 30%, okay, rent, buying a home is probably gonna be better than renting um, for everyone who's bought in the last two years for the most part, right? I, I probably should have bought if I'd known what the market was gonna do um, two years ago instead of rented for the last two years. I would have been better off financially. But to me, that would have been the wrong bet. The long-term average appreciation rate is around 3.4%. And that says that the break-even point between renting and buying is somewhere between five and seven years on average in many markets around the country. It's obviously going to depend on appreciation rates in your market, the spread between mortgage payments and rents in your market, property taxes, all these other different types of things are going to come into that. But I, as a general rule of thumb, say, okay, if I'm planning to live in a property for more than seven years, I'm going to buy not because it's going to be cheaper than renting. If I'm going to live in a property for less than five years, it's probably going to be better to rent than buy. And if I'm going to be in the middle, I've got that gray zone where it's just up to, it's kind of a preference and what you, what you believe um, um, the housing market's going to do in that area um, with that. And so there's no right answer. That would be a general rule of thumb, lots of exceptions to that. So you got to do your own research, but that's how I'd think about the situation. And I think it's perfectly fair in this person's situation to think that renting is cheaper than buying, especially if they don't plan to be there for a long period of time. Yep. I think that we are both in agreement here. It is rental is a valid housing choice in a high priced market. Rental is a valid housing choice if you're not going to be there a long time. Rental is a valid housing choice if you just don't want to make the commitment. I mean, there's a lot of uh, costs involved in owning a house just as the owner that aren't there for you as the renter. Uh, ask me about my $700 furnace repair last year, last month. Yeah. Now, now, but one last thing. The reason why I can buy real estate, investment property, and rent is because I'm I, my strategy allows me to hold the rental property for 30 years, right? So I'm I know I'm gonna I'm, I'm because I'm going to hold for so long. I, I don't I mean I probably won't hold for 30 years, but because my strategy allows for me to do that on each property, then I'm able to defray those costs the way I just described there, right? So I don't have to live in the property. If I was going to buy a place, I would then rent out after I moved out and keep it. That would change my math. But after house hacking for seven years, it's time for me to live in a place that I actually want to live in and like and enjoy with my <laughs> wife. Um, that's my privilege as I've, I've now kind of built that wealth over, you know, seven to, last seven to 10 years doing that investing. And so I, to get that lifestyle, I could, to get a lifestyle options that I wanted, um, a house hack or a property that would make more sense as a rental um, wasn't an option at this point. And that's fair. You know, what I'm hearing you say, Scott, is that you looked at all the options. You didn't jump in with both feet without exploring the different possibilities. You made a conscious decision based on the information you had at the time and what you wanted to do and what you could comfortably afford. And that's really what wealth allows you to do is make decisions based on what you want to do and what you can comfortably afford instead yep. of what you have to do based on the only options you have. Mm -hmm. Okay, moving on. 
Has anybody ever used a bridge loan to close on a new primary residence? We found a home we want, but would either have to sell stocks or use a bridge loan to get the down payment prior to selling our current home. With the hot market, we don't think concurrent close or a selling contingency will work. What are the pros and cons between bridge loan versus selling stocks at high long-term capital gains rates? Are there any other financing options right now? So I really want to stress this point. With the hot market, we don't think concurrent close or a selling contingency will work. Right now in the hottest market that the real estate world has ever, 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 ever seen, you will have a near impossible time getting even your contract accepted. And your contract has to have basically no contingencies in it. Selling, uh, having a selling contingency is going to almost never be accepted in this current market. So having alternate financing is a almost must. If you have not already sold your house, then you should have other financing. Something that Carl and I did with this house that we're in right now is we had another house and we got a HELOC on that other house, which allowed us to, and we we got a HELOC. We each borrowed $50,000 from our 401ks and we sold a collectible car to amass the cash to buy this house because those were the options available to us. Being able to close with cash allowed us to get a super deal on this house. And it was a couple of years ago. We would never get this deal now. Um, but there's a lot of creative financing and a bridge loan is a loan that your lender extends to you knowing that you are going to sell your current house after you buy the first house. So it's it's it bridges the gap between the two houses and it's kind of like a a lien on both houses until you have sold the first house. Um, you Not every lender will offer this property. You definitely want to find somebody who is familiar with this and can work fast to get this. Um, if selling your property and then finding an, another house is not an option for you, you want to start looking for a bridge lo- lender right now who can do this for you. Um, but with regards to a bridge loan versus selling stocks, I like the bridge loan a whole lot more. Yes, it's going to have a higher interest rate, but it's a real short-term interest rate. And selling stocks means you're going to pay capital gains taxes, which is, you know, long-term capital gains hovers around 15% depending on your income. But you're also losing the ability, like all that growth when you sell your stocks. Um, you, I mean, you can go in and buy them back again, I guess, but... At this, I mean, are your stocks even up right now? Maybe they're down. Maybe you're going to sell them at a loss. Maybe there's, you know, maybe there's some, some, uh, there's a lot of things to consider, but I just don't like to sell stocks in general when there's another option like a bridge loan, which is a short term solution with a slightly higher interest rate. I mean, what are you paying? Like, even if you're paying eight or 10%, you're doing that for a couple of months while you're selling your house. And in this market, you buy the new house, you list your old house, it's instantly for sale. You might end up paying one month of interest on that bridge loan. So, so I, I had this, this issue and, um, you know, I, 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 I think I made a mistake here, but here's what my thought process was when I when I when I had this issue on trying to close on a rental property. I needed to come up with the cash. I, I sold the stocks and I incurred the capital gains tax. And you know, my my rationale was, hey, it does. It, I'm, I'm going to invest for the very long term, 
if I pay the capital gains tax and then rebuy when I get my cash back out um, from the, from that deal, right? Which I, I did. I, I was able to refinance out shortly later um, from another property and, and and repay that. Well, I'm just at a higher basis now with that with the with the the new stocks that I purchased back. So I'm gonna pay the taxes if they're in my after tax brokerage account at some point in my life, right? So do I really care if it's now versus later? Um, at that point, you know, our, our capital gains tax going to be higher later, um, from that point. So, so I think, I, I think that as long as you're not going to have a liquidity crunch in the short term with that, you know, everyone talks about deferring taxes, deferring taxes, deferring taxes and all, and all that. Maybe there's a reason why it's kind of half six, six of one and half a dozen of the other, as my mom used to say, um, with that, it's the same thing, um, uh, uh for that. So I'm not sure if I made the right choice there. Um, if you don't want to pay capital gains taxes, a bridge loans, a, a, a reasonable option, I, but I would encourage listeners to attempt to avoid this problem altogether with different avenues here. One is, as Mindy said, sell your home first, right? And when you're selling your home, because the market's so hot, there's an opportunity to have a lease back period that until you're able to find your new housing arrangement, a lot of folks I know are doing essentially that. That will make this problem go away because then you'll be able to sell your home, have the cash, buy the next one um, uh, with with with, uh, with everything in order, and then move out once you have purchased the next property and everybody's happy and you just break, break, bake that a part of your terms that you're asking for and the offers for the home you're listing. So that's one. Um, the second option here would be... Um, a bridge loan, yes, would could be a better option if you want to avoid capital gains taxes and avoid the decision that I went through. Or you can take out a loan against your stock portfolio for a te- for a temporary time period. Many of these brokerages, like E-Trade and Robinhood, offer one, two, three percent loan programs. You can borrow up to fifty percent or some some percentage of your stock portfolio, depending on what you own and how volatile it is and all that kind of stuff. But if you own index funds, you're probably going to be able to get. 40, 50% of your portfolio, and you're able to borrow that at one, two, 3% interest rates, that's a great option that I would go to before the bridge loan. I'd also try the HELOC, as Mindy mentioned, before the bridge loan, just they're cheaper sources of debt. And if you're gonna, if you're just, if you're truly gonna use it for a short period of time to bridge a gap, those might be better alternatives to save you a little bit of interest. Those are really great alternatives, Scott. I actually have a line of credit against my stock portfolio, but I forgot about that option. It's relatively new. Um, but yeah, the the capital gains, that's, you know, that's something to consider is, is you know, where is the market at right now? And you can't predict where the market's going to be, but it would sure stink to sell it when it's down. And then by the time you get the money back out, you've refinanced your mortgage or whatever, the market is way high and you've missed out on that growth. Another thing I just didn't know, um, and this is something I should I should go and investigate now um, for whenever a future situation arises, is is if taking that bridge loan and or taking out another loan against your stock portfolio, whether that um, has some impact on your ability to borrow for the, the new home purchase um, and affects your, your debt to income ratio. So something to look into and talk to your lender that you're going to use to purchase the new home with about, right? Having a mortgage on your primary that is not yet sold and having a bridge loan and or a loan against your stock portfolio, personal loan, um, and having a second mortgage that may put you in some de- de- uh, debt to income um, ratio trouble if you're not careful. So something to talk about with your lender. And I did not want to disrupt the process and even go there with that um, because I was not fully informed. I decided, you know, 
maybe it's six of one, half a dozen the other on just selling my stock port, a portion of my stock portfolio, eating the capital gain this year, buying the property and rebuying. I'll just be at a higher basis and I'm paying the tax today instead of 10 years from now whatever it is, I would liquidate. Yeah. But if you have the time, if you're thinking about doing this, um, this may not work for the person actually asking the question. But if you're listening and you're thinking about doing this, call up a lender, have a conversation with them, ask them these questions, ask them, you know, another great question to ask your lender is what am I not asking or what should I be asking or what information should I know about this program? Um, and just you want to be the most informed that you can. What other options are out there for me? Because I don't want to put myself in this position where I have to scramble to buy a house. Um, something I wanted to tag on to Scott is when you sell your house, you can put in there that you would like in Colorado, it's called a post-closing occupancy agreement or a rent back from your buyers. If the buyer is buying it as their primary residence, they have 60 days to move in per the terms of their mortgage. So you want to make sure that you have found your new home and have moved out within 60 days. And that can put some pressure on you in this market. So again, there's just a lot of things to consider. And what you want to avoid most of all is making a rash decision. So if you're thinking about moving, start gathering information now. Really good perspective. Thanks, Mindy. Okay, I am thinking about pulling money out of my taxable Vanguard to finish the basement on the house I just purchased in November to maximize the value to resale in two years. I'm thinking around $20,000 and it will add two bedrooms, a bath, and a large family room, an additional 1,450 finished square feet. Does this seem worth it? I'll have to pay long-term gains on the money. However, I'm not extremely confident in the stock market currently not that the housing market isn't also wild. Also, I do construction for a living and plan to do most of the work myself before everyone says $20,000 will not do it. So that was my first thought is $20,000 isn't even going to cover it because there, my friend just got a quote for $130,000 to do her basement. So this $20,000. Now, Carl and I did our basement. I want to say we're like 25 into the basement. We put a kitchen down there. Um, we didn't do bathrooms and or we didn't do bedrooms. We did a small bathroom and it's not 1400 square feet. Um, but uh, paying long-term capital gains on adding 1450 finished square feet. This one, I almost think that it's worth it unless he has another way to get the money simply because he has the ability to do the work himself. The market is going so bananas right now that it's almost a sure bet that he's going to make money on this when, as long as he does the work properly. And I'm assuming that he will. Um, and it it just seems like if he's putting in two bedrooms and a bath, he could almost use that, like rent that out now to generate income to maybe even cover the long-term capital gains and then sell it for a profit in two years for an even larger profit because he has more, more, uh, Square, finished square feet. Uh, obviously, this individual will have to do the math on what they think the after repair value of their primary will be. But I, I really like um, the idea of of a project like this, right? You work a full time job and you're refinishing your house during that period. You could add, you know, you, you think that's you, you'd like to think that it's very conceivable. You could add a minimum of a hundred thousand dollars in value to a house by adding that that level of um, 
that that amount of value depending on your market i guess that's a too general but in denver that would be a that would be, you know you think that that would be a really good opportunity to do that and that would all be um essentially tax free um because of the person's living in the property and doing what is essentially a live in flip so i think a live in flip or a house hack is generally going to be a stronger bet than putting money into the stock market and so i'd be um completely aligned with the approach of of pulling the money out and and doing this i don't think that this person will in reality have to pull out 20k and do the project i think that more likely there will be phases where they'll have to pull out several thousand dollar chunks if they're doing the work themselves for materials at various times so you also could see a situation over, over a one to two year project where this person is um actually just spent you know managing their budget and cash flow from their other sources of income like their job and able to essentially cash flow large amounts of the improvements here without having to make this choice. And then lastly, you also have the choice um, that we've outlined earlier of in some cases borrowing at a very small low rate with those personal loans against portions of the stock portfolio if there's a large stock balance. Um, and then finally, one more point, I know I just said lastly, but I'm gonna go in and have a second lastly um, point on this. Um, <laughs> I think this is where we come back to the concept of financial runway, right? And so if if you're building financial runway and, ha and have $20,000, $25,000 built up before you kind of get commit to these long-term investing approaches, I think it helps make these choices that much more accessible because you're not having to make trade-offs between one investment versus the other. No, the financial runway is for this purpose, right? This is a huge opportunity to potentially add a lot of value um, to their financial position. Um, and that could come out of, you know, a cash savings account or money market account or something that's very liquid and intended to be used for something like this, um, that can be a really freeing way to, to build your financial position. I'm going to throw a couple of more options for paying for this out. So I also do construction for a living and plan to do most of the work myself. I wonder if he could pick up a side job or 20 and pay for this because I don't know if you've tried to hire a contractor lately, Scott, but they're in short supply. So perhaps he could go do some side businesses or side jobs and generate the income yeah, without go selling. somebody else's house before doing your own. <laughs> without <Yeah>. selling the <laughs> stock. <laughs> or uh, something that I have done to fund my own rehabs, the big box stores like Home Depot and Lowe's will offer no payment, I'm sorry, no interest on credit card payments, their own store credit card payments up to uh, 6, 12, 18, 24 months, depending on how much you're spending. So if you're going to be making the materials purchases anyway, plan around a promotion like that where you can either get a discount or get the, the no payments, you could potentially get no payments for up to two years and then you're, I'm sorry, not no payments. It's no interest. It's not no payments. You get the no interest for two years. It's a free loan. You buy the materials. You do the work yourself. You make the minimum payments on the card. And then you do have to pay off the total amount before the last payment is due. Otherwise, you owe the entire amount of interest on the entire amount for the entire time. Um, so definitely read the fine print. But that could be a way to fund this deal so that you don't have to pull out the stocks. I mean, there's there's a lot of options. Also, how much is the house worth? Has it increased in value so much that you could get a HELOC and pull from that as needed? There are, there's a lot of options available for funding. So, you know, look around and see what, what you can do. Mm -hmm. Okay, Scott, I think we have time for one more question before we wrap up. It says... 
We purchased our home for $435,000 almost 10 years ago and added a pool for $55,000. Right now, our Texas school district is highly sought after and we could sell for about $800,000. We have no mortgage. We'd love to downsize and use the gains to purchase rentals. But there is nothing available in our school district for us to move into. Would you stick it out for the remaining 15 years we have left with our kids or sell while it's hot and hope we can move into a smaller house in the next few months or something else? And the reason I wanted to ask this question is because I think a lot of people are going to find themselves essentially stuck, and again, air quotes around stuck, in their current home because of housing prices. You buy a house thinking, oh, I'll move in a few years, I'll upsize in a few years, but All of a sudden, the market has increased so much that you either can't afford the new house or there's just, it's such a hot market, there's nothing to buy. You're overpaying and people say there's no such thing as overpaying because it's worth whatever anybody will pay, blah, blah, blah. But they are in a real pickle right now because they have so much equity in this home. Oh, they have no mortgage, so they have total equity, $800,000. They could, I would recommend getting a HELOC and starting to look for a smaller house now so that they could take the money, buy the new house, and then sell the house when they find it. Um, they wouldn't need the bridge loan because their equity is the bridge loan. I would have never but thought I of that. Would, that's a great, I think that's a great move. Yeah, that's that's it. I, I, lo- I love the idea to downsize. That's going to save them a lot of money. Um, if they need the liquidity, they just take out a HELOC um, up to, you know, most of their properties LTV. Then when they, they buy the, the new place, sell that, that and, and they're able, they don't have that liquidity problem um, in, in between and they can buy the place and, and go from there. So I, I think that's a that's a perfect um, answer to that that question, in my opinion. Yeah. I love it. Then they can calmly look for a new house. They can calmly sell their house. And if it doesn't work out, they don't have to, you know, be frantic or be paying rent when they don't want to. They clearly value having no housing payment because they have no mortgage after 10 years. So that's what I would do. Um, okay. I, I would do the same thing. I would, I would listen to Mindy on that one. <laughs> Well, thanks, Scott. Okay, that brings us to the end of the questions that we grabbed from our Facebook group. But we invite you to join us in facebook.com slash group slash BP money and chat with your fellow frugal weirdos and money nerds and money money fanatics and and fi freaks and and make it sound so weird. But it's just people who are like you who want to talk about money and optimizing their life or spending money when on things that are important to them. And there is no wrong answer. We appreciate all commentary as long as it's nice. And if you're not nice, I'll kick you out. So if you want to be nice and talk about money, come on over. We'd love to have you. Yeah. And, and, and please give us feedback on whether you think this this format of just Q&A um, for, for audience questions is a, is, a, is a good one and you like it and you'd like us to do more of it. We would love to do more of this. We could even do a call-in show if you'd like to hear your voice on the radio. Oh, is this, I guess it's a podcast, not a radio. I'm so old. <laughs> okay, Scott, should we get out of here? Let's do it. From episode 290 of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, here's Scott Trench, and I am Mindy Jensen saying, shine on, you bright stars.
There's a reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the Bigger Pockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Think about it. If you house hack and live in one of the units, you still have three different groups of tenants helping to pay down your mortgage each month, four kitchens and bathrooms you can renovate to increase your property value, four different Airbnbs, medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can afford? Which market and which deal is best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down by four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? These are all great questions, all to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devtha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four today and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. That's biggerpockets.com slash F-O-U-R. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.